0: The radio call came through our frequency that 100 snowmobilers were just caught in an avalanche.
1: You're skiing the same terrain probably more often than a pro skier. Quite seriously, I ski 10 times more than the pro skiers you see in the movies. So if you want to start, uh, a lot of my listeners won't know who you are, Um, I guess, who you are and what you do for a living.
0: Yeah, I do very little with uh, race car driving
1: (laughs) or vehicles
0: for that matter. My commute to work involves a helicopter. So um, I'm Marty Schaefer, grew up in uh, a backcountry lodge called Blanket Glacier Chalet, which is a short helicopter flight out of Revelstoke. Um, My parents were guides. They bought the lodge off of um, kind of a crazy German guy back in 1986, the year I was born. It was a family business. My parents ran it, you know, ran telemark camps. They rented it out to people. And then um, I really enjoyed taking groups out with my parents. So I was like 13 years old, split board guiding, taking these groups out. And then, um, yeah, flash forward a few years, I became an ACMG certified ski guide. Um, now I'm based out of Revelstoke, just had a kid and started a guiding business. Um, it used to be 12 years ago, a business called Canadian powder guides, which is short for Kapow. And that's actually Gary, how I met you and your brother. We, uh, we were running a special avalanche course and it was really cool to
1: have you two join in on that. Yeah, no, it was, it was, uh, it was great. And it was a, uh. How do I put it? It was forced, uh, forced endurance training for us since when we're at West, we usually take the snowmobiles <laughs> to the top, uh, not our own two legs. So it was good. It was great. Uh, and so, yeah, sorry. Go for it. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, going back to your parents bought blanket glacier and were they doing ski, uh, ski guiding before that? They were. And, you know, in the late 70s, early
0: 80s, ski touring was telemark skiing. That was their best, like most efficient way of moving for touring. Um, That's when the plastic telemark boot came out. And that was like the revolutionary backcountry thing. They were teaching telemark camps and they were also doing these multi-day traverses. So they would mm-hmm. like heli into a spot, and they'd do like two, one to two week long traverses from point A to point B, moving through these big mountains. At that time, like the early '80s, this commercial backcountry ski touring lodge industry sort of started. There's a few that that popped up. My parents, you know, the Blanket LA being one of the first, and it was special because you could fly to this lodge, and you didn't have to haul everything on your back, and you didn't have to haul, like you didn't have to go from point A to point B. You were just going out and enjoying the powder, something that typically what they did, it was traversed because, you know, deep snow is actually a pain in the ass. So this was just like the early eighties was like, okay, we can actually enjoy this while ski touring on telemark skis. But, um, the chalet was rustic and people loved it because it was just so much better than sleeping in a tent. <laughs> so, right. yeah, uh, they, yeah, they taught those, those avalanche courses, they taught telemarking and then they eventually bought it. And that turned into the, the mainstream family business. So you were born, were you born in Revelstoke? I was actually born in the Rockies. So Canmore, Alberta, uh, that's where they based. And then we always commuted out to Revy and then flew up. Revy now is a booming town. Like, uh, you know, Gary, mm-hmm. when you were here, uh, the resort was was in place. Like the resort's been around uh, since 2008. Before that, Revelstoke was a rough town. It's uh, kind of a silly town to be. To, it's a silly location for a town because it snows a ton it's really awkward like we're talking earlier about trying to push a stroller it's an awkward to raise a family because there's just so much snow it was originally put in from the railway the logging industry and the dam were on the mighty columbia river so it's very industry focused um eventually people like hans moser who invented heli skiing came to town and started heli skiing now it's the heli ski capital of the world. Now it's one of the most, it's the longest vertical descent in North America. So it's, it's on the map for skiing, but it certainly wasn't that way. And um, early on, my parents didn't want to live here. I wish they did. I wish they bought real estate when I was a Grom, but... It was just not where they wanted to spend their time
1: uh did you like when you were little did you spend the entire winters in the backcountry in like a backcountry lodge at blanket you know i wish i could say i was raised by wolves or
0: something like that but yeah 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 as a grom what had happened is about once a month i would go up for a week uh and what that looked like is we loaded up the helicopter um we just packed it to the roof of gear landed at this lodge. It's a short flight, but you know you can't ski tour in. There's no road access in the summertime. You can't even snowmobile in. Um, we'd land at the lodge. There's no radio contact to the outside world. There's obviously no satellite internet as a Grom. Um, the only you know, way you could get out is you could ski tour to the top of a mountain and hopefully catch the pizza delivery guy if he's south of town or something like that on a, on a VHF radio. Um, but no, we, we, I would only spend about a week Uh, a month. So what is that four to five um, weeks a year up there and starting from, you know, I'm born in May. So starting from, you know, six, six to eight months old um, up there for my whole life,
1: really, (laughs) that's, that was always the playground. Right, right. So um, and I think I've heard you talk about this before. Before that, there was no tenure. Uh, and they had to have a trapping license at one of their locations to operate ski touring out of?
0: Well, this is, that's a great question. So actually how my parents started is there's a place close to Kimberley, which is uh, further south in BC, um, with another couple, they were able to secure this trapping license. And in that trapping license, you're allowed to put up a small structure. So that was their workaround to try to build instead of doing these traverses where you sit, spend nights in the tent, they're like, how cool would it be if we had this lodge and to get permission, they got that trapping license. So I think they had to produce like three or four pine Martin pelts <laughs> a year to, to have like, you know, maintain that tenure. Um, that's how it started. Um, they ended up buying this. That was like in the late '70s. So by the '80s, they started renting the chalet, and this was something new for the government. This commercial um, ski touring tenure that was was granted from from government. So the right. blanket was not a trapping license, <laughs> but uh, that, and it's good because we actually had a big enough lodge to to house 12 to 14 guests.
1: Right. So was this something you always knew that you wanted to go into as a career, or were you, did you want to be a fireman or something when you grew up? <laughs> you know, I think
0: I wanted to become a pro mountain biker or a pro skier. Um, but, you know, I always had the drive. I had, you know, at, at such a young age, I had an incredible, I, I, I saw such incredible fulfillment around guiding people, like showing people the backyard. So, um, You know, I, I was learning from, from dad, how to maintain things, how to fix things up, how to guide, how to like set skin tracks. I really, I really loved it. And I think it was once I was out of high school, I broke my back really bad skiing by, by missing the landing of a jump, put me out for about a year and made me realize that maybe being a professional is not the best for your body. And, um, and ski guiding was a great career, not only ski guiding, but, you know, starting a business, being an entrepreneur. My timing was ideal. Uh, when my parents were running camps, it was really hard to fill the lodge. They worked really hard to get things full from you know, December to end of March. Um, and then as I gained my certification level uh, through the guiding certs, popularity of ski touring increased, and I started this business that just became more and more popular. And so it was just sort of like, over the years, I just gained more and more fulfillment from guiding to running a business and, uh, you know, truly giving the um, the public what they want. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great place to be in now where, you know, front covers of magazines are shot at the Blanket Chalet and every big name skier, snowboarder wants to come up. It's like, it wasn't like that when I was a Grom. So I'm so happy that it's <laughs> becoming popular now. So I'll say yes.
1: To answer your question, always been keen to go down this path. <laughs> right, right. And I guess when you start to look at it, you know, you, anyone who's a decent, you know, a good skier when they're younger, it's like, okay, yeah, it'd be so cool to be a pro skier, right? Yeah. But then when you probably put the analytics to it, you're skiing the same terrain, probably more often than a pro skier. And you get to do it without the requirements of, you know, filming and doing all this stuff for sponsors.
0: That's what people don't see behind the lens in these ski movies and front covers of magazines. Pros fly all over the world to stand around in some of the best snow conditions. Like when you see a front cover of a magazine and there's this beautiful turn, we all think that that turn's coming from an epic line. But behind the scenes, that pro has been stand, maybe got up at four in the morning, standing on top of this peak before the light turns perfect. They do one turn in one small pocket. They get the shot. Day's done. Fly back home. What I get to do, guiding, someone's got to set the track first. So quite seriously, I ski 10 times more than the pro skiers you see in the movies. Yes, they get to ski some epic lines and they make it in the film and they maybe get you know, all these clips to make a segment, but that is just a fraction of the amount of skiing that I get or a guide gets. So it's funny. And I mean, you know, I am a pro skier now. I work with brands, K2 Skis, BCA, Backcountry Gear, and True Gear. Um, And what's so cool about it is because of the popularity of, of Backcountry, I'm a great spokesperson and understand the industry so much that I've been working with K2 for the last five years on a ski specific for backcountry ski touring. So it's awesome. I don't have a I don't have to huck my meat case, case of landing and break my back to get <laughs> to get in the spotlight. I just have to uh, to ski a bunch and understand the industry.
1: Right. So <clears throat> was it was it uh, you know you or you and your dad or, or kind of a decision like how to become a guide and how early. Like how young were you when you, when you went to do that? And I guess kind of explain for the listener how intense and how long that process is. That's a good question because, you know, it is quite prestigious to become uh, an association of
0: Canadian mountain guides certified guide. Um, It, you know, even growing up in the industry, father as a guide and totally immersed in the culture and, you know, understanding how it all works. It still took me eight years. So, my history there was out of high school i worked as, on ski patrol so i actually like actually got a job um eventually at this at the ski hill here in revelstoke so i spent the first couple years there gaining my avalanche certification so there's the professional level courses the caa level one and the operations level two the operations level two is like being a certified avalanche forecaster and in Canada, both on the avalanche side and the guiding side, it's known internationally as you know highly regarded. Um, so mm-hmm. as an avalanche forecaster, I can work in New Zealand. As a forecaster, I can work in the States as a forecaster. Once I gained that experience, I decided to take the ACMG certs. So there's kind of like, there's two levels there. There's the apprentice, and then there's the fully certified. And so I was quite young going through it. I uh, took my professional level avalanche courses when I was uh, in my teens, and then by the time I was 20 years old, I was an avalanche forecaster, which set me up for when I was 22 years old. I was an apprentice ski guide, ACMG guide. Um, I gained two years of experience, and then I took the full ski guide uh, course. And so, what that looks like, you know, it's a full year of school once you're in into accepted into the apprentice program. I should be clear, like just to get accepted into the apprentice program, that's years of experience in industry, doing these big, long traverses. You basically need to prove that you're not only a professional, but you have traveled in uh, very complex terrain and you're up against, you know, everyone that also applies and they only accept like 20 to 25 candidates per year. Um, wow. you take these three courses challenge the exam, which is a 10 day exam. And then from there, you you have that apprentice certification, and then two years, and then you take your full. But with these exams, you know, typically, it's a 70% failure rate. Um, Wow, they make it hard, because it is prestigious. And you know, the job is hard, it looks like, you know, in the movies, and on a day to day basis, my job looks super fun and easy, right? Just get to ski first, and I always get to ski fresh, pow. But what you need to prove, and what the exam looks like, is you fly into a tent-based camp, middle of nowhere, BC, um, and then you guide two other candidates and an examiner for 10 days, days—you know, seven days to 10 days. And that is in the most complex glaciated terrain and gnarly conditions that they can throw you in. You need to be able to prove that you can move through this terrain comfortably and confidently uh, with style. And so the expectations need to be hard because we can get thrown into some really difficult scenarios in the mountains. Um, and so, yeah, quite proud to get that done um, and done at a young age. That teed me up to be, you know, starting my own business and having the success in running Kapow and Blanket Um, uh, now being
1: 37 years old. I've been, Kapow's been around for 12 years now. So, wow. Were you one of the younger people to ever, like, I guess, one of the younger complete guides? You know, the stat there is I was the youngest
0: um, avalanche professional that you could be because you have to be 19 years old to take your first level um, operations course. So I took my CA ops one when I was 19 and I took my ops two when I was 20. And then once you've done those two, based on experience, you can become a professional member for the Canadian Avalanche Association. So I was not the youngest guide. Years ago, you were able to go through the ACMG program at a younger age. Nowadays, you have to get so much experience to get into the program. So I wasn't the youngest guide, but I was definitely young
1: going through it. (laughs) Right, right. Did you... um... Did you ever have any hesitancy from any any clients? Like you know, this this kid is is guiding me, or or uh, you know, good question. Competent like competent enough. Paint. I'll just paint the
0: picture here. Like I cross country skied growing up, so that was my backcountry touring kit. It was a purple uh, cross country, the <laughs> um, Canmore Nordic cross country kit. There's like tights, and then I had my warm up suit. I had these Airwalk snowboard boots. And my split board was um, a K2 Fat Bob that my dad helped cut down the middle. It was a small little split board. And a split board is a snowboard cut down the middle with uh, bindings that you can ski... Like, you can put your snowboard bindings um, on the split board, use the skis to go up. And then at the top, you slap that snowboard together. So in the, like... (laughs) in the 90s, snowboarding was not popular with the telemark crowd. So not only was I like 13 years old, I was also snowboarding, taking these clients, like moving them through the glacier of Blanket Chalet, just leading with so much confidence. I like, I wouldn't trust a 13 year old in the backcountry, but it was unreal the support. And they obviously knew my dad was overseeing things. But I just like, I mean, I didn't know any different. I just this is just what I knew. I'm taking people skiing. I know these great little pockets. I, I, I wanted to show people where the best shredding was. They were always fired up because I had so much energy and I'd stay
1: out to dark skiing, but jeez, I just can't
0: believe people trusted
1: me. <laughs> yeah, no kidding, eh? Did you um I guess during those um you know, you yeah, well. You've logged so many hours with clients and and on your own in the backcountry. I guess what's kind of the scariest or gnarliest experience that you've kind of had to, you know, f- manage and figure your way out of.
0: It's a good question because you know we are exposed so much in the mountains. It's such an uncontrolled environment. You know, like snow is just juvenile, right? Like it's just new to this earth. Um, and so what you learn over the years of traveling through the mountains is you learn how to manage terrain, you know, snowpack is just, you're never going to make, it's such an inexact science. You're never going to look at a slope and know for certain if that's going to slide or not. So ski touring, our exposure is far less than something like heli skiing. And that just makes sense. Like heli skiing, you're skiing 10 to maybe 20 Uh, laps a day. Plus you're flying around in this tin chicken through the mountains with Mount Weather bouncing you around. So my gnarliest experiences come from heli skiing. And that just makes sense because on any given winter, my exposure was just like 10, 20 X compared to ski touring. So in that world, for sure, we responded to, and we're also like a resource of recreationalists get themselves into trouble. So I feel like I was always on edge ski touring because it's like, I'm oh, sorry, I'm um, heli skiing because you never know if it's going to be something in the group or another group or you're called to a recreationalist party. It was just like <laughs> endless stories of heli skiing, ski touring and the blanket. Um, it's sort of a different story the the blanket is nicknamed the safety blanket. Um, and that's because the terrain is not big and gnarly. Gary, when you came to take an avalanche course, we spent a lot of time in Rogers Pass. And Rogers Pass is famous for these huge avalanche paths that threaten the railway and the highway. It's kind of silly, years ago, um, when they were connecting the east to the west of Canada, they decided to connect the railway right through Rogers Pass, because from point A to point B, it was really quite streamlined. Where they should have put the railway is way up north and, and just moved around the mountains. So what happened is once they put the railway in, they realized that Rogers Pass is just shutting the railway down constantly with all these, these avalanche paths. Fast forward into the 60s, they put the, the highway in, which also gave great access to ski touring. So what I'm getting at here is the ski touring is incredible in Rogers Pass, but you can't leave the parking lot without being in huge avalanche paths, huge exposure. You know every five minutes as you're ski touring around you've got a you know a different variable to consider with overhead hazard or or people skiing down on you the blanket has manageable terrain where it's these big open trees there's not these huge avalanche paths it's very simple you just pick your line you don't know, you can you can put yourself in terrain that's not exposed um and so I find the more experience I get, the more I find myself loving skiing pow, but not drawn to the big complex lines. I I enjoy (laughs) goofing off with friends. I enjoy skiing powder. I certainly enjoy the challenge of putting together a guiding program, but I just am not drawn to the exposure that heli skiing and big terrain brings. And it's funny, you know, that that aligns with so many old guides as well. You know, you expose yourself Mm. to so much. Um, as a, at a younger, you know, younger in your career and the more experience you get, you enjoy the guiding, but you realize that, you know, maybe all this exposure doesn't have that fulfillment that, <laughs> yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't come with as much fulfillment if you catch my drift.
1: Right. Yeah. Right. Um, I guess when you were working, uh, Hallie, Hallie ski guiding and, and all that stuff, did you, were you ever directly involved in an avalanche?
0: Yes. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I haven't had a group. And it's you know just to be clear, like you know when you're moving through the mountains that much, it's not an if an avalanche will happen, it's when. Um, yeah. And what we learn and going back to terrain is, is especially guides, we learn how to move people through the terrain. So it's like if something were to happen, you're minimizing you know the group's exposure. So think about heli skiing. You're packing eleven guests in a helicopter, and you're sitting up front. So you're moving 11 people through this big, complex terrain. You can imagine these broken glaciers, steep, gnarly moraine features, trees that are tight, uh, all those sorts of things. So, I certainly have stories where another group was caught in an avalanche, and uh, I would respond with my group, or I'd respond to um, you know, certain incidents. Um, and yeah, I've like I've dug a mentor of mine out of an avalanche. I've uh, responded to. Geez, like there was. Um, I was working one day out of Revelstoke, this was I think around 2010, and the radio call came through our frequency that 100 snowmobilers were just caught in an avalanche. And right. we loaded up, I was the second group landing uh, out of Revelstoke, and sure enough, 100 sledders truly were caught in an avalanche. And as you can imagine, that was just complete chaos. Um, this letter actually did a great job rescuing. Unfortunately, two people passed away, but given the circumstances of a hundred people caught, um, that was a success. So it's just like you expose yourself to this, this world that's going to happen. Um, we train, uh, every year we train once a month. Uh, we obviously train our guests every time we go out for the worst case scenario, but part of being, you know, a certified guide and an avalanche forecaster is we're dialed when shit hits the fan. I think that our job looks really easy to a guest. Um, It looks really easy on the surface. And uh, that means we make it like we're doing a really good job if it makes it look easy. But I think our true professionalism shines when shit hits the fan because we know how to respond to it. And unfortunately, unfortunately, we have responded to a lot of incidents. So when it does happen, we know how to react quickly because, you know, like especially this time of year, it's dark at like 3.30. Our timing needs to be so quick. And we do respond to everything from cornice failures to guests falling into crevasses, which is on a glacier, to avalanches, um, tree well incidences, people falling into a creek. It's just like there's so many hazards in this uncontrolled mountain environment. Um, it's like no two incidents are exactly alike, but uh, you know our responses, um, yeah, our responses are dialed based on whatever
1: <laughs> whatever guests or people in the mountains end up doing. Yeah. Yeah, and and you know, I guess you've seen the entire or almost the entire range of backcountry access and people going into the backcountry just exploding. Yeah. You know, from the 80s and 90s you had to really know what you're doing. It would be pretty damn hard to even get your snowmobile into the backcountry in the 80s. And and now it's like anyone with a new machine can, you know, be up there in 15 minutes.
0: Access now
1: is so easy
0: and it's I mean that is worldwide uh Revelstoke in particular snowmobiling yeah you can access things really quick um you can access the backcountry so easy remember we had a really fun day off uh, RMR which is Revelstoke Mountain Resort we uh yeah. we went through a cornice we ski these big steep lines and it was like within five minutes we're in this huge complex terrain like skiing a couloir um you know you wouldn't have done that in those like telemark skiing days um But what's really cool and what's really special that I want to highlight is the resources that are out there for the recreationalists now. I think in Canada, we have the best forecasting network there is. So Avalanche Canada, Mm -hmm. uh, which is avalanche.ca, their avalanche forecasts are awesome. And that's not just like, you know, if you pull up an avalanche bulletin, the first thing you see is you see the the danger ratings in the three zones, alpine, treeline, below treeline. Yes, it's a great snapshot there, but what what Canada does particularly good at is highlighting the avalanche problems. So um, with that, with a good um, weather forecast on the website, plus there's the recreationalists uh, report. And I think that's what really stands out in Canada, is there's a culture for reporting incidents. Because we're dealing with such an uncontrolled and uncertain environment, it's just so important to gather as much information as possible. We call the mountains busy up here, but in reality, it's like you stand on top of a peak and as far as the eye can see, you might see a you know a group or two. We really don't have the in-depth knowledge that a place like Europe would have, where there's people everywhere. Um, so there's this thing called the Mountain Information Network, where recreationalists report just conditions to avalanche involvements or even sightings. We have so many resources. So yes, there's more people getting into the backcountry. There's more people going further. But uh, generally, there's a culture, and then there's a lot of resources for the recreationalists. That I don't know the true stats, but considering how many people in the backcountry, it's amazing not more people are getting themselves caught into uh, hairy situations.
1: Right, right. So tell me about, um, I guess, you, you, the impetus for starting Kapow and the the need that you saw in the industry that you wanted to fill.
0: Oh, I appreciate that question. So. Early on in my guiding career, uh, and to be clear, the guiding industry uh, in Canada came from Europe. A lot of these Austrian, a lot of these European guides came over. It was actually originally to Rogers Pass where they put the railway in. They saw these beautiful mountains that looked like Switzerland, uh, and they put up this beautiful hotel, and the guests were traveling through on the railway, staying at this hotel and adventuring through the mountains and getting themselves killed and getting themselves in these terrible situations. So... The uh, CPR rail, they decided to hire these Swiss guides and get, start guiding people out of um, out of Canada. Fast forward, you know, close to 100 years, we, we're at where we are now, but our, our foundation comes from a European style of guiding. European guides are well known for not engaging with their guests. It's like the guide leads, yeah. the clients follow, there's no communication on conditions. It's just like my job as a guide is to take you through a day. Um, I hated that style because, <laughs> you know, I think about if I was a guest, I would want to know what's going on. And this is just also paired well with what was happening with the boom of the industry. North American clients really enjoyed the education side. So I saw this demand both in guiding culture, style and the education. I decided to start this business that was fun, approachable and highly educational. So all of our guided trips, uh, even if you just hire a guide, comes with a lot of education. You meet your guide in the morning, you go through an avalanche transceiver, a rescue practice, you talk through the avalanche bulletin, and we're in the field. You know We're deciding to make decisions with the group. Obviously, you're a leader as a guide, but you know, you're engaging your clients. So this just sort of blew up. Clients really wanted to do this. There's this a huge amount of guides that started wanting to do this. And it was really cool for me to watch some of these pro skiers, pro snowboarders getting into guiding because of this culture. Um, And then things just exploded. So we, you know, all of our avalanche courses are shred educational based. So we're going shredding and we're learning along the way. Saw this huge demand to take avalanche courses, which aren't just classroom based or just standing at the bottom of something and pointing up and looking. It's like, we're going to go out there and we're actually going to ski the terrain that you want to ski. So, you know, the clients we're looking for are quite capable clients. Uh, Fit, solid under their their feet on skis or snowboards. Um, Because there's so much learning with moving through this big, complex, uh, challenging environment. So not only are we certified guides, but we're guides that like to shred, guides that really enjoy the education. Um, and what happens is like, these courses are just mega fun. Like Gary, we did, I think, yeah, we did a heli drop on one of our, our, our yeah. courses. So on an avalanche course, we loaded up the students in a helicopter, landed on the top of a peak, and then the students had to work their way back to town or back to the pickup as a group. Um, and it was the opposite. It wasn't a guide leading. It was like the, your group of four or working through um, you know, taking the avalanche bulletin, ground truth in that information, stimulating the conversation and moving through this big complex environment. I was at the back of the group, um, letting you, you know, like with a short leash, making those decisions, um, and moving through the mountains. And that's just like I'm getting all fired up talking about it. It's just like it's a unique style of um of guiding, which is why I started the, the business. And uh, you know, fast forward to where we are today, and a lot of other guiding companies are doing it similar because it's just kind of the way you know, the industry's going, the guiding industry's going.
1: Yeah, I think it has to go that way. Like, I'm sure anyone who's done anything with a guide, whether it be climbing, hunting, whatever it is, there is that, um, you know, baseline of kind of being short with the client, not, you know, being a little bit grumpy maybe, um, because the margin for error is so small in any of those activities. But I think it, yeah, you know, someone's, coming up from Colorado or whatever and they're paying a bunch of good money and it might it might hinder the fun of the experience for sure.
0: Well, what I really noticed, Gary, is like what I thought was going to happen is people were going to take a course from us um, or a guided day and then they're going to learn everything in that day and then they're not going to come back. But the success of the business is people are going to tell their friends to come. But what's happened is the more that we educate on what's going on, the more i found that clients understand the value of a guide <laughs> so um, yeah. you know where typically you know obviously you get your crusty hunting guide that takes you out and it's like obviously you know they can find amazing uh they can find an amazing experience uh they bring you to sp- special spots whether it's you know fly fishing or hunting um but the more you learn the more you realize you don't know especially in, in mm. the backcountry but To be clear in the guiding industry, if you're, you're going on a day of cat skiing and heli skiing, the only way that works is if the guide makes all the decisions. Um, there needs to be a central decision maker because things are just happening so fast. The benefit with ski touring is you can slow things down a little bit, so there's a lot of learning there. But what's so cool, um, you know, setting my guiding team up, is you're also managing your clients' expectations so in the morning, mm-hmm. if you're talking through what the avalanche conditions are, the objective of the day, the dynamics of the group, you know, when you get up to the decision-making point, you're not alone as a guide. You're stimulating the conversation of the group, and everyone's going to support you. I'd be like, "No, let's not go up to Deathnar Peak today. That doesn't seem to make sense." <laughs> yeah. We're typically, you know, you, like you're saying, you got that client coming from Colorado. It's like, look at, I'm here to ski Deathnar Peak because I saw it in the movies. So. Uh, what i found is our clients don 't push us as as much as your typical European or you know Heliski guest would because our guests know what 's going on so it's it 's a huge win win and that was the foundation of starting this business was like there 's these clients there 's these amazing guides kapow is just that uh that vehicle or that uh the glue that
1: that sticks them together <laughs>
0: slaps them together
1: right and I remember you do like you do actually some sort of background check or like an in like an uh, onboarding form, and do you like turn people away if they don't fit the right profile? Yeah, this is turning into a thing. So, I have a limited
0: guiding team. I mean, now we're at about thirty guides, so it's it's turning into a big big uh, business. Um, but the thing is, is we want to get like light... what we're trying to do is we're trying to play backcountry matchmaking. Um, Like I said earlier, we're looking for clients that have a certain level of fitness, have, um, you know, some shreddability so that we can apply this curriculum in a certain level of terrain. So there is, there's, you know, sometimes we'll call people, but there is an onboarding, um, there's an onboarding form before people even show up. And what is cool too, is like, we do have growth with various courses in the business. So once we develop a relationship with someone, we know who to combine people with but we, you know, Mm. anyone that backcountry skis knows it's hard to find ski touring partners when you're getting into it. So we find that we really expedite that whole thing where people come on a course, they meet a lot of other people, they come on another course, they start growing their community. Um, so that being said, if it's a client, like a typical heli ski client that just wants to get guided, not partake in the conversation. Um, it's just not our vibe. (laughs) Like we're, We're educational, we're younger at heart, I'll say. That doesn't necessarily mean you have to be young, but what has happened is our client base is younger than your typical um, heli-ski guest. We're also way more fun. And if you don't have a sense of humor, you're just not welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right, that's mandatory. Well, Gary, you know what? Actually, what I really want to hit on too is the byproduct of all this is it creates this atmosphere that people can bring up um, any conversation or any question in a group. Uh, This typical seriousness that you see in European guiding where the guide leads, everyone's quiet, you just follow, you've got this like dictatorship style of guide uh, leadership. Um, It's not only not as it fun, but it's not what I believe in as uh, safe backcountry travel. So a lot of our stuff comes across as fun. I like to use the word approachable. But what it is, it's mm. just this atmosphere where people feel comfortable talking through things, slow things down, analyze things as a group. Because because snow is such an inexact science, so much of what we're doing is we're managing human desires. So dynamics are key. And that's going to be the future of avalanche education is just really figuring out human desires, human group management, those kinds of things. Because we're getting to the, you know, we can't be that much better at snow science. That's just like... That's inexact, and it's just too hard to pinpoint precisely if an avalanche, if a slope will avalanche or
1: not. Right. I want you to um, hopefully, you know, off the top of your head, run me through some of the the great names that you have for your courses.
0: <laughs> well, I, you know what? With that, like I was saying, if you don't have a sense of humor, you're not allowed to come. I think right on the website, it makes it pretty clear I started the business with comedian Katie Burrell. And for any of your listeners, if you're looking for a chuckle, I mean, Katie's just exploding on the scene. She's a comedian um, in the backcountry space. Um, so, her and I just had a total gas coming up with these things. Um, she believed in this business so much. She's like, Marty, we need to create this approachable vibe. And with that, we came up with these names. So, uh, for example, like the female or couples trip. That's educational in the backcountry, and what um, you know Canada is famous for is these pillow skiing, so these like big pillows of snow that build up in rocks. So that camp is called Pillow Talk. We've got a youth specific course where it's it's called How to Be a Young Person That Older People Respect. We've got a rope course uh, where you learn glacier travel, where you where you uh, link up with with uh, your fellow um, friends. It's called How to Hook Up with Your Friends. Uh Gary, you took um our pinnacle avalanche course. So in Canada, Avalanche courses are called Avalanche Skills Training courses. So they're called AST courses. We decided to add a B and an L in front of AST. So you get backcountry learning with Avalanche skills training. So come and have a blast. The high-level course is the mega blast, the mountain education geared for advanced backcountry travel with Avalanche skills training. <laughs> So, that's great and we've just that like you know what's happened is it's just like your gateway if you don't think this is funny if you're not attracted to any of this then uh you can
1: move on to the european guide <laughs> right right oh that's awesome so um did you recently take completely take over the the business from your parents
0: yeah so there is you know it's kind of two businesses here to be clear there's this logic you're up with blanket glacier chalet My guiding business does all of the running up there. So we've taken over, I've taken over the Blanket Chalet. Kapow is also based at a Revelstoke. I'm sure this has been kind of confusing to follow along. So Gary, you took a course that was based in Revy. It was a seven-day course. So, you know, 60% of our business is the Blanket Chalet. So it's every four days, clients fly up, groups of 12 to 14. They go shredding. Uh, You learn along the way at the Chalet. That's a heli-access. You're just remote the whole time. Outside of that, there's two and four day uh, avalanche courses based in Revy. You can also hire a guide based in Revy going in the back off the backcountry of uh, Revelstoke Mountain Resort, going off Rogers Pass and, you know, some other secret spots around Revelstoke. Um, So it's sort of like a guiding business based in
1: Revy, also the lodge. Right. So uh, how much of your uh, of your time? Now is running a business and being a business owner compared to, I guess, what you maybe imagined it as when you were 15, (laughs) being this, you know, skiing guy who just skis all the time.
0: But you know what? What a great question! Because my parents did a really good job at showing me how hard it was to run a business. So I saw Mm. my parents in the trenches. They did not have any employees, it was just a mom and pop shop. I don't think we ever had a family dinner where the phone didn't ring. So whether mom or dad picked up the phone, hustling to try to get clients in, um, they made it seem totally miserable to run a small business. So (laughs) the biggest thing I learned from them is to build, and not from them, but a byproduct of watching how they ran a business was I've always wanted to build up a team. And so, you know, now we have Sarah that runs the office. She's she's the matchmaker. She's the one that will field the the guest the guests coming in. Uh, we've got a head of food operations, which is awesome. We're, we've got, I'm so proud of our Kapow Chow uh, food program at The Blanket, also based in town. Um, I have a maintenance program. So I'm like, I'm not that handy. I'm not much of a chef. I just love managing a team. So you know what? In reality, at this point, it's it's now 12 years in where I can take a step back. Yes, of course, I'm making sure the ship is uh, is going the right direction, but uh, I get to just jump in on some really fun trips. I get to pick the programs I want. I'm super fired up to do youth programs based at a I've got long running guests I go up to the blanket with or I'll just pop in if a, you know, a guide is sick and I need to, to kind of file in there. Um, at the end of the day, you know, the two things I get the most fulfillment of is certainly running the business successfully, but just being able to guide clients that truly love it and uh, are passionate about what we're doing.
1: Right. So you're um, you I don't know if you still do it. You're doing a a mountain bike podcast and you're a serious mountain biker. That's what you do all summer. You grew up like what mountain bike racing
0: i did and that's kind of going back to where like i I thought i was going to be a pro mountain biker in my teens so you know i i focused so heavily for years building up this winter business um going through the guiding certs um just now in my 30s i've kind of dove back into this professional riding side but what was so great with it is like the professional where i got my literal voice was running the yeti cycles podcast talk yeti to me um it hooked me up with the biggest names in the industry. I um, ended up racing a bunch of um, you know races across North America um, and actually in Europe as well. What's so great with mountain biking is it's this personal challenge. So in the wintertime, I get challenged running a business. Um, as a guide, I certainly get challenged moving people through terrain. But what I don't get is I don't push myself personally. When I'm on an up track, I'm setting a pace for the group When I'm skiing down, I'm picking a line that's best for my clients. So skiing, you know, in a season, I might get 10 days, maybe less of true recreational skiing. So I don't actually, I don't get to push my ski ability that much. Once the snow melts on my bike, that's where I push myself. Um, So that's, you know, whether it's racing or big epic log rides, um, and being paired with Yeti Cycles, both running the podcast and, you know, various races that they sponsor, that's been such a push. Don't run the podcast anymore, but check out Talk Yeti to Me for some really fun uh, fun content there.
1: Oh, that's great. That's great. So uh, you, you were snowboarding, then you switched to skiing. Yeah. Why? That's a good
0: question. And, you know, right now I like snowboarding on my days off, but... In reality, moving through the mountains it is more efficient on skis. It's just more simple. If someone's snowboarding in, in the group and I need to throw their poles to them, my poles to them, it's really easy to do that if I'm on skis. Um, there's certain guiding techniques where, you know, like if you're setting a traverse track with a group, it's a lot easier to do that on skis. Um, you can set it a little bit higher angle compared to a snowboard where you're kind of at the mercy of gravity a little bit more. So that was right out of high school when I got a job ski patrol at 18. Um, I actually wasn't even allowed to snowboard. So I just jumped on skis. Um, I do love skiing. Um, I feel like especially the ski that we're developing with um, K2, I feel like I'm developing a ski that gets as close to snowboarding as possible. Like there's Mm. no question that a snowboard turn and pow is just like superior. So I'm trying to find this balance of getting that feeling of a snowboard turn on skis that also have these skis that are, you know, tools for what they need to be. So I still do both, but, um, you know, my guiding is 90, 95% on skis.
1: Right. Can you tell me about the ski? Yeah.
0: So it's the, uh, K2 dispatch came out two years ago. Um, we're actually already working on a new, um, a new model, and it's been cool to see how much energy it is to come up with ski design. Um, like I said earlier, it took us five years to land on something that we love. Um, you know, unlike a snowboard or a surfboard, you know, you can change dimensions by you know a few millimeters, and it doesn't throw it off that much. But skis, like a subtle change, both on flex pattern, mounting location. Um, all these different factors and it completely changes the feeling um and so you can only engineer to a certain level you have to actually get boots on the ground skis in the snow um to to understand what this is going to be like and that's kind of where i came in going back to like a pro skier doesn't ski nearly as much as i do i get to ski more than anyone probably on this planet (laughs) um i have more you know turns and deep pow than anyone else so the feedback i was able to give k2 um, was great also my feedback is based around the client it's not based around me trying to be a pro skier so mm. this ski is what we're looking at is the most predictable um, ski touring ski in the market it's super light it's also super playful it's really easy to design skis that are great in pow because powder snow is light and fluffy really easy to turn in Backcountry skiing isn't always perfect pow. So to find a ski where you've got breakable crust, uh, variable conditions that has some predictability to it is the, you know, the tool that we're looking for. So we found, we landed on this really great design. Um, It's like a little metal top -top sheet, really light wood. The dispatch comes in three different uh, widths. So like a 101 underfoot the 110 underfoot, and 120 underfoot. As you know, skiers, that's what we do to gauge or to tell people how fat skis are because we say how fat it is underfoot. Um, and now we're working on this cool design with special skin attachments. So it's been, it's been really fun not having to huck my meat and have a job with K2 skis. It's like my 16-year-old self dream come true. Like, going back to what i said earlier it's just like no one hung out with me in the backcountry i was trying to tell people this stuff was cool so happy to see that i can like be involved in the industry at the you know forefront of design and everyone and their dog
1: wants to come backcountry skiing so it's i love where the industry's at now let's keep it up absolutely absolutely <laughs> You've seen, I guess, since you were little and, you know, you were saying initially that, that ski touring was telemark skiing and probably pretty rudimentary skins. Uh, you've seen a huge progression. Where do you see the future going as far as backcountry uh, equipment?
0: If we could figure out like, you know, e-bikes for ski touring, that'd be pretty cool. Mm. Or if we could figure out how drones, like there's like a backpack that brings us to the top. Um, it's kind of funny, you know, those that, don't, those listeners that don't understand what I'm keep saying with skins, what that comes from is, is literally seal skins on the bottom of skis. Like maybe it came from Norway where, you know, seal skin, on the bottom of your skis, it slides when you're moving your, your foot forward and then sticks, uh, when you're plant your foot. So you can move up the, up the slope. When you're at the top, you rip the skins, you rip those seal skins off and put them in your backpack. Obviously. We don't use seal skins anymore. It's a synthetic <laughs> material, but it's just glue on one side and and uh, material on the other. I don't know what it's going to be, but you know, some sort of skin um, technology will be the future. Uh, but you know what? Like ski boots, skis, and bindings, they are about as efficient as they get. Um, I, you know, if you've never ski toured before, it seems intimidating that you're walking to the top of a mountain. But anyone that's ever hiked if I can compare it to that. Hiking, you've got undulating terrain. You've got a trail that's constantly changing. It's steep, it's lower angle, there's rocks. With ski touring, we set a skin track that is smooth and efficient that goes all the way to the top. Uh, We've actually found it's about 18 degrees, that angle. So as a client, as you're moving through the skin track, you're just like, you're shuffling your feet. It's like a constant, continuous, smooth movement before you know it, you're at the top. So these boots that are efficient, skins that are efficient, and bindings are deficient, I don't know what's going to be next. Maybe I do. I'm just not allowed to say it
1: yet. <laughs> I don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got the jet pack, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I guess, I, guess I, I typically end these conversations with um, a piece of advice, and maybe you've got a couple different answers or a couple different aspects here. What advice do you have for... You know, so often you see the young guy because I'm from Ontario, the young guy who's a, a good skier in Ontario moves out west, wants to go skiing and ultimately wants to make a living in the ski industry, but doesn't doesn't know where to start. What advice do you have for someone who wants to find their direction? Luckily, you know, this industry is growing quite a bit, but we're
0: still a really small industry in general, especially if you land in a place like Revelstoke, there's so many resources out there starting at Avalanche Canada. So this is a great example of social media. Like I actually get a lot of my conditions update watching some of the pros and even recreationalists out there, but it's so easy to reach out on social media and there's amazing Facebook groups out there. So just like a quick Facebook search, backcountry travel or backcountry ski tours, um, whether that's Revelstoke or Whistler or even small town, I don't know, anywhere that's got backcountry. um, That's a great way to get other people to go ski touring with, follow conditions and reach out to those that seem like they know what they're talking about. Um, I get messages all the time looking for practicums. I mean, ultimately, it comes down to, for me, even like we're a, we're a growing business, we're still a small business. I need to develop a relationship before we have someone along. But there's a lot of resources out there. Um, but Avalanche Canada is a great kind of starting point. And then, uh, yeah, gaining that mentorship is uh, is a big one.
1: Right. What's, uh, what's next for you? What do you have? I know you've probably always got something cooking up, some ideas. What's next for you for Kapow or to expand or... Anything like that?
0: Oh, I'm just constantly brainstorming this. I'm in a really cool position. I've got a three-week-year-old kid. I'm not going up to the blanket as much. I'm uh, I'm at home. My wife and I are brainstorming what's going to be next. You know, um, I'm excited to do something unique. Kind of like follow along what we're going to be doing for next year, but uh, something that is different, whether that's a tent-based camp, fly in remote locations, um and all educational based is is definitely the future. Um it's just uh yeah, I'm excited to see what the next 10 years of the backcountry industry and avalanche education takes
1: us. Cool. I appreciate the conversation. Tell everyone where they can follow you. And if you're not following all of Marty's Instagram accounts, they're definitely uh definitely entertaining.
0: I have so much fun with social media. Uh just because I have more time in the mountains than pretty much anyone. So both conditions, updates, and just goofing off. So my personal account is uh, Marty Schaefer. The guiding business is Kapow Guiding. And to be clear, that starts with a C. So that's C-A-P-O-W, guiding. And then the Blanket Glacier Chalet is our uh, is our hut. So yeah, follow along, have some fun. And you know if you're looking for, you're moving out this way, I was t- saying social media is a great place to meet up. What a great opportunity to shoot us a line. You'll find me in the DMs. <laughs>
1: Right on. Thanks, man. I appreciate your
0: time. Appreciate it, Gary.
1: See you guys next week.